Hello and welcome. I am Marianne Fessenden from AMTS and this is the Nutritionist Webinar. Our webinar this month is a collaborative effort between Dr. Elena Bonfante, our Italian AMTS distributor, and Dr. Bill Prokop, both of whom are partners in Dairy Innovations Italia. Dr. Bonfante is a veterinary doctor graduated from the University of Bologna, Italy. During her PhD, she spent seven months at Cornell University, where she began her training in applied dairy nutrition and management through working with dairies throughout the U.S. and Italy. Dr. Bill Prokop is a 1975 graduate of Cornell Ag and Life Sciences and a 1979 graduate of the New York State College of Veterinary Medicine at Cornell University. He has worked as a dairy practitioner for over 40 years with a focus on prevention of clinical diseases through ration formulation and best management practices with an emphasis on animal welfare. He provides management and nutritional services to dairies and allied industries throughout the U.S. and internationally and is an advocate of the application of the CNCPS model platform for feeding herds to achieve greater efficiency with less detrimental environmental impact. Together, Bill and Elena formed the Dairy Innovations Group to provide consultative services in nutrition and management directly to dairies in collaboration with nutritionists and with industry. Today, they will take us on a tour of three dairies in Panora, Padana, Italy, as well as the famous PDO region of Parmigiano-Reggiano and Grana Padano cheese, and discuss the challenges facing those dairies. Along the way, they will demonstrate how adaptation of Western management technologies can improve dairy efficiency, health, and productivity without threatening the romantic dairy culture for which Italy is known. As a full disclosure on our part, the concept of on-farm webinars seemed fantastic and innovative. In execution, it has presented challenges, primarily in audio quality. This webinar is no exception. The video quality is tremendous, but we will struggle with the audio. In effort to reduce the strain of listening, I have recorded and modified to create a better experience. It is imperfect, and I apologize for that. I will be running English subtitles in an attempt to ameliorate listening pain. Remember to enter your questions in the chat or Q&A windows for answering at the end of the webinar. Hi, are you interested in knowing more about the Italian dairy market? So you are in the right place. And we start sharing some numbers related to the milk production and dairy cows population in Italy. The first thing you should know about uh, the uh, Italian milk production is that uh, Italy is uh, one of the largest producer country of uh, PDO cheese, cheeses. And uh, uh, these uh, imply uh, some restricted rules uh, related to the cheese production, but also uh, to the uh, dairy cow's nutrition. And we'll give you some example uh, in the farm visit uh, you are gonna see today. For just to give you uh, an overview, Italy um, of, the Ita uh, of the Italian production, the 70% uh, is consumed and stay within the country and 30% uh, milk equivalent uh, is exported uh, all around the world. Uh, the dairy cow population counts uh, 1 million and 600, uh, um, 600 cows 
and uh, the uh, production, the meal production counts uh, uh, 12.5 million tons of milk per year. As you expected, we are going to visit some farm in uh, Italy, the country surrounded by, by the uh, Mediterranean Sea. And uh, here we are going to visit uh, um, some farms in the north uh, of Italy, where you can see we are blessed by a, a vast and a huge area uh, that allows us to uh, harvest a lot of crops. Here we are blessed by a huge amount of water. We have the Po River that cross uh, this, uh, uh, this huge area. And uh, that's why in the north of Italy, we uh, raise the highest amount of uh, dairy cows. So today we are gonna bring you to, uh, for the first visit in the Cremona, uh, in the Cremona area. And uh, in particular in uh, um, town that is called Castel Gabbiano. Hi everybody, my name is Biancessi Mauro. As uh, Elena said, I'm the owner of Spring Farm. And uh, here we are. Ciao a tutti, I'm Bill Prokop. I am Elena's partner in Dairy Innovations. And we are doing one of our routine visits at Spring Farm. And to give you a little background on the farm, we started working with Mauro and his brothers back in 2016 um, with the understanding that they were looking to improve and implement new technologies and not necessarily change the facility. And so we thought we'd do a walkthrough with you and show how technologies can be adapted Rations can be formulated in order to accommodate existing constraints of facilities and size and show the improvement that can be made. And so with that, we thought we'd do a walkthrough and give you a taste of dairy Italian style. That will be will present the farm here, so yeah, let's walk around. The, my farm is... Uh, 50 years old farm. My, my, my dad moved to this village in the 50s and then he started a dairy farm with his own brothers. Back then they were farming 100, he was able to buy till 100 hectares until he died in 78 and uh, they were managing a dairy farm of 200 cows that was quite big at that time, it was one of the biggest in the area. After my dad died, uh, my brother took up uh, with uh, our uncles, but uh, we didn't agree with them, so we split up in 1988 and we settled Spring Farm since then. We all now, we are now farming around 100 hectares of land, some owned, some rented, and we are milking 320 cows. 320 cows and we have another 45 dry. As uh, Bill said, uh, you won't see any fancy facilities here because uh, for a different reason we decided not to not to grow anymore so far because uh, mostly because uh, of land, land, uh, land price, uh, 
it's very expensive, renting is, uh, renting land is, is getting even more expensive. What's so, the hectare price for cropland now? Hectare price for cropland is, uh, it goes to 70 to 90,000 euros per hectare. And it dropped in, in the last years. It was, uh, it was higher uh, 10 years before the other. And so, uh, in round figures in US dollars, that's about 50,000 US dollars a day. And uh, renting, uh, renting farm, good farmland now is, takes uh, 1500 euros a hectare. And then you have to do all the works and uh, the farming. And, let you imagine how much is uh, and another issue is that uh, the, the, the manure spreading, the manure uh, management. Now you you need to have uh, land. Uh, the more cow you have, the more land you have to spread manure on. So main reason of not we decided not to grow with the cow number anymore is the land, and then uh, some other reason. Then we can discuss about uh, when we go through the farm historically. Nutrient management was not a big issue. That is something now that's no, be because uh, since uh, EU regulation, they decided we didn't, we couldn't uh, spread more uh, than a than a number of uh, unit uh, international unit of uh, nitrogen on the field. That is gonna be three hundred per hectare, I guess. And together with the fertilizer you use, that's why we don't use any fertilizer anymore. You use only manure or the digested manure from the biogas plant that you're gonna see. And that allows us allowed us to to run the farm without any fertilizer since uh, for 20 years so far. Probably we are not buying any 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 nitrogen or. Uh, or any kind of fertilizer in the farm. And one of the focuses of Spring Farm is their sustainability. And when we talk sustainability, we're not just talking about the nutrient management side of it, but all the other practices that will enable the farm to exist and produce food now and in decades to come. And so as we look at the system that's involved in sustaining uh, the farm, we want to factor in all of the considerations, okay, of the different enterprises that this farm has taken on in order to assure its sustainability. Mara alluded to the fact that there's a, a biogas, a digester, uh, we're going to have to see compost and manure that's sold. Again, it's the idea that just because you're dairy, doesn't limit your output to milk. Okay, there are other opportunities that have to be embraced if we're going to stay vibrant in the future. Yeah, we didn't we didn't uh, go for uh, for more cows, but we didn't stop in investing money. We, we we went for the biogas plant. We put in the first one in 2010, and with that uh, we put in also a composted uh, compost. Uh, Operation uh, barn where we we, we make uh, compost that we sell to greenhouses, and then uh, last year we we decided to put in another biogas uh, because uh, 
the, the first one is going to be shut down in five years to just to keep the farm uh, on, on that kind of operation to and the new biogas is going to start uh, producing power in next month in september probably okay let's go to see some cows so we're standing in front of uh, spring farm uh, close-up group when dairy innovations evaluates a dairy we try to do it in terms of a systems thinking approach and understand the life cycle of the lactation of the cow and starting with the cow in the dry stage and understanding the changes that she'll go through during the different stages of physiology I think is important in terms of meeting her nutrient requirements and so as you can see this is a fully depreciated facility but it's very effective and it works well the intake of these girls, Elena, is what? Dry matter, do you remember? I think 28? Dry matter yes. is uh, around 12. Dry matter is Okay. So, so it's calculated um, for 12, but there is some more. And because there are heifers and cows mixed, we have to have a challenge here is knowing that the intakes are going to vary quite a bit. In Jersey. <laughs> and, and we have some jerseys and crosses as well to add to the mix. Now, when we started working with the farm, we wanted to implement an antibiotic diet in the close-up to control hypocalcemia um, and also to get the benefits of increasing metabolizable protein, which is critical in this group, through the use of products that are both antibiotic and will stimulate uh, the MP output of the room. Um, we like to teach biocore, but because of the herd size, we couldn't practically justify a far off diet and a close up diet. So, what this is, is a far off diet, and then there's a top dressing to make it a close up diet. There's also an addition back to the far offs of an ingredient as part of the close up diet but there is top dressing as well here um, to meet their needs. And it is proven to be highly effective. Uh, we've reduced the number of fresh cow problems dramatically as a result of this in terms of retainable centers and ketosis and DAs. And for any dairy, eliminating all of those unnecessary fresh cow problems and any intervention in the fresh cow window with their nutritional therapeutics I think is paramount and that's paid off very well for us here and you can see by looking at these girls they're happy and um, we can find lots of ways of improving but that's critical the transition this pre-fresh group is the reason why I started to work with Bill, Elena and the NTS because I was using anionic salt even before I met them and I started to work with them, but probably not at the at the right uh, amount. And uh, and the, the 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 fat of the MP that we uh, thought already I, I didn't measure it uh, correctly before, and that it wasn't feeding the enough uh, enough protein to get uh, to that uh, to the need to get to reach the, the need of the cow these cows. And since I started with BioClore and uh, following the right amount, I feed I feed half in the in the in the duration and half as a top fed to this uh, to only the the, the pre-fresh group to reach about uh, six seven hundred grams a day. 
of bioclot and then I use some other product on top like sugar other another source of protein and some uh, protective fat uh, the, the, the uh, calcium soap or soy oil just so to improve the, 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 the ovaries and the, the future uh, so reproductive Bauer was one of the first in Europe to embrace feeding essential fatty acids in the transition and fresh cows to improve reproduction. He saw it work. Unfortunately, at that time, the product was from the U.S. was Essentium, and now we can't bring that into the EU. So he's adapted his. I had uh, I had a local uh, supplier that. Uh, I, I told him to do something like so. We started to produce. He started to produce the the calcium soap of soy oil. It's a seventy percent of fat, probably because you need more calcium to keep it together. And that uh, that works. It, it works for for cows and for the reproduction. Any other things? System works. Cows get clean even in the, the hot weather. Clean up uh, good. The, the, the last uh, test I had after calving, I had only one, two with metritis, but just uh, you just need a shot of prostaglandin to get rid of it. It's not anything. Uh, and I I seldom treat cows after calving. I don't wanna. I'm, I, I I quit uh, being aggressive treatment after calving. I leave, I leave the cow goes and then I go check the cows if she's really in trouble or she got some trouble evident uh, problem but I don't find any 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 problem. I can say that last month I had uh, three pro three three milk fever cases. Then with Elena we went uh, to see the ration, we had the lesion tested and we noticed that uh, it was more uh, moist, that it was more uh, humid, more moisture in the ration and uh, the decad was positive, no? And probably we, my, my TMR guy, my brother changed uh, one of the silage in the ration without telling me and it was more, uh, more humid, more moist, it was uh, higher in moisture and uh, and that uh, made us some uh, problem in the ration, but we fixed it with a uh, new ration, and this month uh, we didn't have any, 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 any problem of that kind. So Mauro is writing a book. You can get a first edition. It's dairy farming with your relatives, the benefits, and other fiction. Okay? And so if any of you would like to, a copy of the signed copy, Mauro has those available. So um, I will show you a little bit the cows, uh, and yeah. then we'll move to the fresh pen. Here the feed bank uh, and the cooling system. This is the feeding area, and uh, uh, on the back uh, they have uh, all the room they need uh, for resting. I will show you. But they're clean. Smell good. Okay, but they're clean. Okay, they're good. Yeah. But see, so what I look at is the legs, the hocks and all. The bedding is uh, dry and clean, and uh, if they need, uh, they can use this space uh, outside as well. But uh, I find them uh, most of the time uh, inside, <laughs> even if you can see it's a little bit short, but it's well good.
I'm not aggressive at all at calving time. Cows, 95% of the cow calf, uh, calf by themselves inside here. I get up in the morning and I find calves around and cows that are there taking care of their, their calves. And that's probably another reason to have a good transition because uh, the more, you, I mean, in my opinion, the more you bother the cows at, at calving time, the, the more problem you're gonna have. Calving is a natural process, no? You just Absolutely. have to wait. Absolutely. That's good. She's there, I didn't touch her, probably not. She cleaned up and she's there eating, drinking and doing good. This one called in last week. The same. No, 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 no intervention. I didn't touch it, touch her with anything. She, she just called in and started to milk and didn't have any 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 need of treatment or whatever. And it is up. And so this is where they go after calving heifers and cows, the postpartum group. And they're here for an average of what, two to three weeks? Yeah, more than that because I'm <laughs> I'm stuck with cows. I can move them with uh, with the rate I would like because uh, if I I move cow from here, I have to move cow from the other group, no? So. <laughs> From 50, 50 days, 60, yeah, so, so we adjust the ratio for that. This is a, an effort, a second calver that, that uh, need to be moved, uh, then probably next, next week. That's another cow that called in last week. The one, uh, the third one, the one in the middle is a seven calvert Calvin uh, four days ago. No sign, no sign of mean fever, nothing. So longevity, even in a facility that's not ideal, we can optimize enough of the comfort factors and the nutritional factors that longevity is not a problem. Health and sustainability for these girls is not a problem. We've stopped in front of the far-off dry cow pen, and that's attached to the uh, late lactation cows that we just walked by. But the point is, this is our far-off group. As you can see, it's, it's small, and this is the base diet that's in front of them, to which other ingredients are added when it's delivered to the post. And they invested uh, in cooling system as well. No? Yeah, there's, as with the, the uh, close-ups, the far-offs get soaked and they have a fan overhead to move air. So, uh, we're stopping in front of the pen that houses the Pluriparis high cows stage of lactation. Uh, again, the cows are soaked, there's fans, uh, TMR is similar in terms of its consistency as you saw before, and if we take a look at the girls, despite the heat, they look quite comfortable and um, productive. These are the group where I start to, to breed them back. I have a voluntary day waiting period of 90 days now, this group, because uh, going 3x I saw that uh, 
didn't have, didn't have to be such in a hurry to work them right back. It works. I have uh, now 28 uh, points of uh, PR since uh, November 2020, uh, 2020. It's 28, uh, both in the first half and uh, older. And that's it. The only things I do here is reading. I I'm on a double off scene program, so it works. just cows the milk and do their job I know that I can do better but uh, right now I've, I find it hard to, to invest money in a new facilities because uh, there is so much pressure on uh, on uh, on our industry and I want to see what's going on and maybe three four years are gonna decide what to do or I'm gonna go for a new barn uh, and, and go to 500 cows if I will find some more land or stay here and, and see what, what is gonna be. I had a son that uh, he likes uh, dealing in the farm and doing chores in the farm. And so you have to stay here longer now. Yeah. So this uh, uh, is another example as a wood facility can be uh, Modify to improve the welfare of the animal. You see that the, the wall were uh, took off, okay, in order to improve uh, the ventilation of these uh, parts. So we are going to meet again our guests. So we're in front of uh, two uh, upright storage facilities. Um, which are very prevalent in the EU to prevent shrink, um, control losses, and one of them is the molasses tank, obviously that's a no-brainer. Uh, the other is the mineral mix that we have custom-made, and again, like so many changes, um, what's remarkable about this mineral mix is not what's in it, which in itself is smartamine and methionine analogs and ferment and things like that, but all the things that we took out when we started working with the dairy, the B vitamins and, and other non-protected ingredients that serve, and lower levels of phosphorus, things that are not needed, okay? And this is where there's money to be saved and, again, improve the, uh, the balance for the farm. So just point that out. Since I started to use uh, Minerals at that rate, I, I lower feed problem and cows are, are doing much better. Rye grass 2021st 
they they used they to cut it even even earlier yeah they chop it very early this year but uh, the digestibility <laughs> is better than i ever seen so around 70s as a 30 hour kd kd yes and you have digestibility smells great 25 this one yes i wanted it a little bit drier That'll make milk. Huh? That makes milk. Yeah, That's when so we delicious. use it, uh, we tend to drop uh, in the soy holes, so fiber byproduct, and we keep the same intake. Here we are uh, in the feeding area where the cereals and the concentrates are. Here we have uh, some. Uh, this looks like cornmeal and it's essentially is except this is the byproduct of the production of polenta where they take the harder starch from the kernel the dent if you will and this is the starch that's refused and it's sold as a byproduct and we're feeding it here um, to the cows Funny thing is that the starch in this is more digestible than the cornflakes. Yeah, those kind of cornflakes. This is that kind of cornflakes. The uh, seven-hour KD of of the uh, steam flake corn in Italy typically is not real good. Yeah, nothing exotic. Good old-fashioned soy hulls. Straw. Maybe me from South America. I was lucky last year that I was able to renew the, the contract at last year price. I'm saving <laughs> a lot good. of money with this. Yeah. Extruded, cartel. Estrude soybean, half, half fat. Seven percent. Seven percent. Uh, this is uh, extruded soybean meal produced here in Italy. Very high quality and very high digestibility. Uh, we even use some of this in the transition group to get the MP up high enough. Okay, there's a certain amount of this in there. It um, works very well. This is uh, rice, uh, some byproduct from rice, uh, rice uh, milling. milling, rice mill, and we use it a little bit in the biogas. And probably my brother started to feed some to the heifer. I have to find out. So, this is a very good point. When you have uh, a digester on the farm for biogas, and you want it to work optimally you have to recognize that besides your conventional ruminants that you're feeding to make milk now you have a concrete cow that you're feeding to make gas okay and having such a facility affords the opportunity to capture inexpensive ingredients like this and in fact corn silage is double cropped here and one of those two crops is dedicated to the digester okay so 
Um, these are all strategies um, to improve productivity and profitability going forward. <clears throat> so just a word here to explain some of the uh, Western type architecture compared to the traditional European style dairies. Mauro spent uh, time as a Cornell Dairy Fellows and went through the program with Mike Van Amberg and acquired insight into structures that we now take for granted of opti optimizing ventilation, which is something historically heifer facilities have never done well. And he was the first in his area to put in a structure like this and was told by all of his well-intentioned neighbors that the animals would die of pneumonia because of all the fresh air, which sounds pretty ridiculous. But um, this is a testimony of the blending of the technologies that work with facilities that are still sustainable and will carry on. I don't want to sound, uh, how do you say, uh, but I never had a, a pneumonia case <laughs> on this bar. Bragging, bragging, bragging rights. Bragging, uh, Do you use a sex semen, Mauro? No, not at all. No, because I don't have, uh, I don't want to grow and so I don't need a strafer. I, I have more than enough using 80% uh, uh, traditional semen and, and then I breed all the rest to beef. So you can see some beef uh, crossbred, uh, blue Belgian blue here in, the, in this group. I keep them for, for beef, some beef for us and some, uh, some goes to the beef market. For comparison's sake, this is a fairly typical way of covering bunks here in Italy. Plastic and then covered with um, stone. It's heavier than pea gravel. And um, shovel it off and you, re you know, recapture it for the next time. You shovel it off, yes. But it does a beautiful job of holding down and excluding the air because you have a uniform amount of pressure applied to the surface. And uh, it works very well. So just again for uh, audience in the Americas that may not have seen this before. Here we are in front of the first uh, biogas uh, we put in in 2010. And uh, what can I say? That's the separator for the digested uh, manure. We use the, 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 the solid to, to bed to bed the, the freestone because it's digested and we do we did some tests and the, 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 the bacteria count is really low so we use it uh, like that if you want some figures I can say that uh, this plant uh, paid uh, in three years paid itself off in three years and now the, the, the income is 70% from the dairy and 30% from the biogas and the, and the compost barn. These digesters are 
under a contract with the government yeah. to be used for 15 years. These were, uh, were signed for 15 years contract at 28, 28 cents uh, per, uh, per kilowatt. And this is a 250 kilowatt uh, plant. And that is going to end in 2015. Then we'll see what they're going to tell us if we can keep uh, using it at a lower rate, at a lower uh, lower price, lower... Uh, lower ends, when is it in? 2025, okay. yes. Sorry. No, it's okay. You said you're done. <laughs> yeah. In this area, there are bunker silos. Some of them are used for feed for cattle, but the idea being the digesters have dedicated feeds as well, and storage of those is done out here in proximity to the digesters. We have, um, we're, we will uh, do some research on uh, on the digester and on the on the manure, the biogas manure, because uh, there's a company that wanna bring here uh, an equipment, a, a, a sort of equipment that is gonna dry them up with uh, pressure and a little bit of it, and they are gonna make a solid. Uh, solid uh, fertilizer that is gonna go sold in into garden shop and uh, they're gonna treat the compost no no not this one the one, the the one, the one that, the one that is coming from the digester okay and here what we have this is the compost compost bank this is how the compost uh, looks after two three months of uh, maturation and of uh, stirring stirring and, uh, of, and uh, fermentation the aerobic ones, the aerobic fermentation, right. and is uh, is almost inert. Nothing, nothing grows on this one. There's no seed inside there. It's killed off. Yeah. Everything. Some is killed in the digester, and the rest is killed here. What temperature do you achieve when the compost? It goes to 60 sometimes, uh, depending yeah. on the in the season centigrade it depends from the moisture yeah but our client wanted a little bit drier than we used to to make it so we don't we don't pour the liquid on top anymore because through the machine through this machine you can uh, you can uh, also have a different kind of moisture no because uh, from this uh, Things you can pour some liquid uh, manure on top and then it's mixed by, by the machine. And that one is coming, uh, coming from the pit. Oh, right. So you can also work on the nutrients. So with this one, you close the This cycle. is the solid that goes in the, in the digester. Manure and some uh, silage that is not good for the cows. Or the one on top, the one on the side, so we can feed the cows with the best part of the silages and throw the rest in the digest. What's the time for the compost um, to cycle and be ready? Three, four months. And then you empty it fully or no, partially? No, we, 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 yeah, usually two times a year we, we empty it. Yeah.
then we started to market also another product last year two years ago we mix uh, the solid from the comp from the digester. from the digester with uh, calcium carbonate and we sell to other farms as uh, for bedding for uh. we bring it to uh, 50 percent uh, moisture with calcium carbonate with limestone like, so and we there are some farms that can We've had a brief walk through of Spring Farm. One family, three brothers, one operation, three enterprises. And we will summarize with specifics of ration specification and other numbers quantifying uh, output and management. But this gives you a feel um, for what a sustainable dairy operation in Italy will look like. No, I mean. Uh as a dairy farmer, I regret not having uh, having uh, brand new facilities like my cousin did. But uh, as a businessman, probably that was the right choice. Thank you, Mauro, for your time. Thank you too. Thank you to you and uh, see you. Grazie mille. And you know how much Marianne loves uh, jerseys, so a little bonus for her. So let's move now a little bit south, nearby Cremona City, in Robecco Doglio, where we are going to visit a dairy farm that produces milk for the uh, Grana Padano cheese production. So uh, here you can see the area where the Grana Padano uh, is produced and uh, uh, the milk that um, um, is used for these uh, um, for this cheese production has to uh, follow uh, some uh, rules uh, that uh, are uh, pretty restrict restrictive. For example, in the feeding uh, um, management, we have to take in account the fact that uh, it's not uh, allowed to use uh, canola, for example, or other byproducts uh, like uh, distillers. Um, and this um, has a difference compared to the uh, Parmigiano-Reggiano uh, milk production. Uh, we are allowed to use uh, silages like corn silage or uh, different grass silages. Uh, so now let's uh, give a look to the Panizza, the Rifarma. Uh, we have uh, uh, two buildings for the dairy um, for the dairy cows. The group one, two, three that are the that is the old barn owned uh, by the, the producers uh, for a long time, 50 years, and the group five and uh, four that uh, is. Um, related to a, a farm that uh, was um, was bought a few years ago. Uh, the rest uh, is uh, all um, related to old uh, facilities that uh, host uh, the replacement uh, and the dry cows. This um, farm uh, produce uh, uh, um, an average now of uh, uh, 43 uh, liters of milk uh, and uh, it peaks uh, during the winter time to uh, 48 uh, 50 liters of milk so now let's um, go to see what the producer uh, have to say 
Yesterday we were at Spring Farm with the Anchesi family and we showed you a traditional Italian family dairy operation that did not update their facilities but chose to assure their sustainability by developing additional enterprises on the dairy operation. Today we're at the farm of Patricia and Luca Venezia. This was a traditional parlor dairy and they chose to, a few years ago, invest in robots to assure their sustainability for the future of the dairy industry in Italy. And we're going to do a walkthrough of their facility and discuss with them some of the challenges they've had and frustrations and successes. And uh, their daughter Martina is with us this morning to help translate. So with that, I will turn it over to Elena. Hi to everybody. As Bill said, today we are uh, in the Cremona area, uh, in the Panizza's farm, and uh, we are gonna see uh, and uh, have a walk around their dairy. Uh, so this is a 500 uh, cow dairy. Uh, they have uh, both systems, so the uh, old facility with the milking parlor, and now the, it is milking uh, roughly 200 cows and uh, uh, 300 cows that are uh, under robots. So uh, we are going to talk with Patrizia and Luca, the owners, uh, why they made uh, this uh, decision and this transition and uh, which were the challenges of this uh, uh, transition that they faced during the process. But uh, let's uh, now have uh, a little tour in, the, in their dairy and uh, so we can understand, uh, you know, how uh, is it managed. So, uh, here we are uh, in the uh, robot barn, the first, uh, first one that was converted uh, in uh, robot from a milking uh, parlor. There are uh, two groups uh, with uh, two robots each uh, in head, uh, the head of the barn, and uh, uh, they are fed, uh, of course, uh, with a PMR and uh, a pellet in the robot. They now are using only one kind of pellet uh, that uh, uh, contains some starch, proteins and uh, soluble fiber that, and we see the composition later if you are interested. Uh, the, in, during these years, uh, so far, uh, they are, have been using this farm for uh, uh, two and a half uh, years with the robots. They have improved uh, the ventilation as well, uh, as you can see. and uh, they have also sparkling uh, in the close by the feeding area. So this is uh, the old barn and um, they have uh, uh, moved this um, group as well to the robot system. So uh, uh, we can see here as well two robots with they created um, and they covered uh, the, um, the waiting area in front of the robot in order uh, to facilitate the access to the, to the robot, to the two robots. Here you can see they have the, uh, also the ventilation system uh, that is working. It's an old one, yes, can be implemented, uh, but still this group is uh, the most productive as well. So um, it works pretty 
pretty well. The temperature here is uh, now averaging uh, 30, 33 degrees during the day and we are not going below 20 at all during the summer time. So you see that they are standing, eating, some of them are lying down in the stalls, bedding with straw and the stalls are well well used. So here they have also a little friend that helps them to push up feed. Uh, it uh, does it uh, six uh, times per day and is very helpful, uh, most of all during the night time where few people are around here. Uh, but uh, you know he can still uh, do his work and uh, make the feed closer to the cows uh, even during the night time. I'm asking why they went to robots, okay? From traditional dairy. So that's which question she's going to ask them and they're going to answer. We moved to the robotic milking system uh, three years ago. We decided to move in this direction because we think that the cows can perform better on a productive and reproductive point of view because the robotic system carry to a better welfare compared to the old milking system that is um, system with the, the milking parlor 2x. Today we keep uh, a group of 300 cows in the milking parlor because the uh, facilities, the old facilities, um, doesn't allow us to um, make a transition to the robotic system. This uh, in front of us uh, is a, a barn that we bought four years ago, uh, that was uh, very close to our, the old one, uh, in which we work uh, uh, from 15, uh, 50 years. We are actually the third generation that works uh, uh, here, and this uh, building in front of us was perfect for the transition to robot. The most important challenge that uh, we faced uh, in the transition process was to uh, make sure that the cows were not uh, affected by the works that uh, was necessary uh, for uh, change uh, you know, to the milking parlor, uh, to the robot. So um, this was a, a long work, but uh, the goal was to don't create uh, stress in excess during the works. And uh, the moment uh, to which uh, we paid more attention was for sure the adaptation period. So every day beside the milking parlor activity, uh, we carried every cow in the robot. She uh, was eating uh, twice a day the pellet to get used to the machine. Only after 10 days, uh, when we see that the cows uh, was not scared and uh, got inside uh, Without problem, with uh, the uh, tech service of Lely, we decided to start uh, the milking 
uh, with the robot. The first uh, period is for sure the uh, moment uh, where more challenging. The timing uh, and the time uh, that we spent was uh, high, but we noticed that the cows uh, adapted more better than we did because what uh, scared the most uh, is always uh, so uh, the cow does, is she gonna get uh, minked by herself but they learn actually better and faster than us the other thing is then read the data and understand when it's better to uh, act and to intervene uh, based upon the number that the machine tells us why the robotic milking system and not uh, 3x we produce milk for the uh, grana padano and the rules uh, of the grana padano doesn't allow the to milk 3x with the conventional milking parlor but allows the um, voluntary milking with robotic system our, so our choice uh, was uh, uh, driven by this rule but uh, well accepted because uh, we have been highly paid back by the increased uh, welfare level in the group if i can add we moved from uh, four robots to six and probably in the next five years from six to ten So when you move uh, to the robot, um, was the situation uh, better, the same or worse, uh, considering the people uh, management? The number of uh, employees uh, is the same. What we have done was to change the rules uh, of the milkers that now um, cover different uh, rules. We have to say that the work um, with the robot is completely different on the management. You don't have uh, time when the cow uh, is uh, empty and full, but uh, the, the groups are always full and the work has to be done uh, in harmony with the cows. And uh, first of all, you have to have uh, workers that, uh, um, that, that make uh, the work uh, respecting the timing of the cows and the resting time and the movement in the group. And then the um, robotic uh, system take the worker to have uh, a more relaxed uh, life with uh, more flexible uh, schedule compared to the old milking uh, system. So we are not moving back. Who is taking care of the feedings and uh, who produce the crops destined to the cows? So the agronomic uh, aspect, uh, I am the responsible for uh, with other three uh, people that collaborate with me. It is not easy because uh, I'm not able to dedicate uh, enough attention uh, to the 
crops because I had to divide myself between uh, the dairy and the fields. But let me say that uh, we have created uh, a great team with my wife, my daughter and the collaborators. So we try to compensate some um, time uh, loss and attention uh, to the dairy when uh, I'm not here. So the people that stays uh, compensate for my absence uh, in a great way. So which is the most important factor in the crops management and crop quality? To me, it's the tempestivity uh, to prevent the weather the tempestivity for the seeding and the harvesting and the prevention the prevention of the weeds thank you has the work of the family member changed uh, with the transition to the robot so considering uh, the time spent in the dairy, we actually increased a little bit the time spent to check the alarms given by the robot. But at the same time, we trained the workers. So when we are not here, they are able to understand the problem of the machine and solve it even without us to be here. But no matter what, I keep giving order and he <laughs> executes. As in every respectable family, the woman is the boss. Now we are going to move uh, further south in the Parma area, in the Emilia-Romagna region. So in this area, we are moving to the um, area of the Parmigiano-Reggiano, where the most important cheese all around the world is produced. And here you can see that there are limita natural limitations that define the Parmigiano-Reggiano area, for example, uh, in the north, the Po River, and uh, on the east side, the Reno River. Uh, this um, area is characterized by the uh, production of milk that is used to produce uh, the famous Parmigiano-Reggiano cheese. And uh, as uh, probably you know, uh, one of the main characteristics of this production is that uh, it's not uh, possible to use fermented feed. So the cows are fed only with dry hay. And uh, you will uh, see better during the visit. So now we are going to move uh, south in the southern part of Parma on the mountains. And uh, we are going to visit the Ancelotti's dairy farm. As you can see, it is uh, on a fantastic um, background. Uh, it's surrounded by uh, mountains and uh, hills and uh, it is um, close by a car racing circuit and uh, uh, the main river of the area. So let's start the visit. Ciao tutti, we are here in Viazzano, Italy at the farm of Sergio and Roberto Ancelotti. 
They're going to give us a tour of their operation. This is a Parmigiano-Reggiano region dairy. They're going to explain the challenges and restrictions and opportunities in producing milk for the production of Parmigiano-Reggiano cheese. So Sergio and Roberto are describing their management system, a single dry cow group on a bedded pack with access to a very generous exercise lot. Now I'll go over more specifics of their system in detail going forward here. I want people to notice is they soak the dry cows for cooling. Okay? And look at the comfort of the bedded pack. It's not crowded, it's dry, and it's deep soft bedding, which we know whether it's sand or manure solids is what cows prefer. When was the last time you cleaned out that pack? So again, not conventional, single group, that's the challenge that we're confronting to make a transition diet for them so that we satisfy the needs but don't spend too much money doing it and affect better transition into the fresh cow pen, which is why they engaged us. Let's move on. And these cows, make sure we get them. I want demonstrate what body condition score looks like in this group. That's young stuff. Show those. Here we are coming to the three stalls with the fresh cows. What's the bedding? Straw and lime? 
Every Friday we renew the bedding with a mix of uh, limestone, water and straw. One straw, one uh, limestone and two water. This is the ratio. There is, uh, we don't have any RPs in this group. We check the pH of the bedding. We are always uh, above 9. started working with Ancelotti's with the young stock several years ago, four or five years ago. Anyway, they've recognized the benefits of feeding the heifers for better growth. These girls were calving in at 22 months, 37 kilos, doing awesome. And so even some of the Western ideas of having animals freshened earlier can be played out with aggressive managers, even in Italy. So the important thing to note in this dairy, as with all Parmesan-Reggiano dairies, it is a completely dry TMR. The use of fermented feeds is not allowed. The concern is that the spore transfer through the milk would destroy the cheese from gas production. The other restriction with Parmesan-Reggiano is the milking is only 2x, and that's because this milk is taken directly to the creamery and will be converted into cheese within 24 hours. We'll now walk down and Ellen will pan the cows and the feed and you can see firsthand what this looks like. Since taking over this dairy in 1987, Roberto and Sergio have made it a focus to continuously improve the cow comfort factors on the dairy, improve ventilation, cow soaking, major improvement to make the surface smooth for the cows to eat off of, make it easier for them to consume all the TMR, are evident here. So the question we have for them is, what's next? Today we are working on the project of uh, sex and beef, uh, in which I believe uh, very much, uh, and uh, keep uh, uh, increasing the production with less animals total. Today we produce uh, 3,800 tons of milk with uh, 540 animals. My goal is to reduce uh, uh, the animal below 500 and keep the same production. What is your current production and fat and protein in the herd? Chiede qual è la produzione attuale media e le componenti, quindi grasso e proteina. Today we are producing 3.87 butter fat and uh, uh, on the casing we are producing 2.67 average all around the year and the production goes from 44 to 41 uh, all year round. In the Parmigiano-Reggiano consortium you are limited by quotas to a certain level of production. You are at the top of your quota now, correct? With 3,800 tons, we are uh, on top, uh, so I could buy more, but it's not my intention. For you to buy more quota, 
someone has to be willing to sell it to you, correct? You, you, there's no quota that the consortium just sells. So they are controlling the volume of production through the quota system here to regulate price and also make sure that they have enough milk for Parmesan Reggiano cheese. Okay? And I don't believe in exponential growth uh, in general of the all businesses. Uh, we have the luck that Parmigiano Reggiano gives a high margin uh, to the activity. This uh, farm works uh, with 25% margin and this is uh, a lot. So um, then there is the life quality for the workers and uh, of the animal. Why should I uh, risk all, all this? in order to look for uh, uh, growth, uh, exponential growth. So we're here standing at the uh, auto feeders and calves are brought into each pen and they stay there until weaned basically as a group. And this is the youngest group um, in front of us now. They come here after about 14 days being in a hutch on bottles and then are put on the auto feeder. These calves are a little um, under the weather because they've just been dehorned and so they're not quite as active as they normally would be. But um, we had advocated this system several years ago. We started with mob feeders and now we've graduated to computerized auto feeders and the enchiladas are ecstatic with the results. They stay in that pen through the entire process. This is a wean pen. They've been weaned about a month now. And again, you can see the benefits that they're getting uh, on these girls by feeding the ad-lib source of milk and the starter, the formulation of which we provided based upon work that was done at Cornell with Mike Van Amberg and Rodrigo Molonis. Roberto just informed us that at weaning, they're eating three kilos of the starter that we formed. So the, those are other two groups of calves of different age. Uh, they are fed with the auto feeder. Uh, they, um, uh, they undergo a program that uh, feed them at least uh, eight liters um, the first week they are there till 16 liters with a milk that is 27% proteins, 22 uh, fat at a concentration of uh, 15%. So now we've moved um, to the wean calf pens anywhere from 4 to 10 months of age. Uh, these pens have access to the outside for exercise and uh, we'll take a closer look and evaluate what we see. So we have incredible stature, condition, maybe a little more than adequate, but just awesome calves. This is an example of their haze, 
that they produce, of course they buy also some from the outside, but as you can see, uh, the quality and the color of the product that the heifer has in front of uh, them. And uh, um, of course for the uh, lactating cow diet, uh, everything is uh, put in a TMR mixer and um, chopped shortly in order to increase the dromedary intake. So as we uh, wrap up our tour of Italy, uh, I want to take a moment to thank our host and our tour guide, our partner Gary Innovations Italia, Elena Bonfante, for sharing with us a taste of dairy Italian style. And I thought it'd be important just to summarize the dairy innovations philosophy of management intervention with regard to the transition programs. And, you know, quite simply, we embrace the systems approach of management intervention. And what that essentially means is we try to look at the big picture and make sure that the solution that we're implementing today isn't going to have unintended consequences down the road, days, weeks, months from now. And when dealing with problems on the dairy, we try to use a cause analysis and uh, getting a big picture and making sure the solutions that are implemented are not just going to have an effect locally, but more globally in operation. You know, the old joke is that the only tool you have is a hammer, you can see the problem as a nail. I think it rings true. Uh, a lot of us, what we experienced on dairies, the emphasis of non-nutritional, that is the cow well-being aspects of management, can't be overstated. And as uh, Rick Grant at Meyer Institute, the people there have quantified Letting a cow be a cow is probably the best lesson we can take home if we implement technologies. Uh, now, the hallmark of successful transition has always been the mitigation of hypercalcemia, which has been seen as a gateway disease to a lot of fresh cow problems, including placenta, nutritis, ketosis, TAs, you know the drill. Uh, but that may not be the root cause. And I don't have time to go into it, but I just want to suggest that um, there's research forthcoming that uh, may shed a lot of light on cause and effects of peripartial disease with respect to hypercalcemia, specifically with regard to the fact that immune activation, that is inflammation or response, probably to a lipopolysaccharide uh, penetration into the cow's system at time of calving may initiate the cascade of problems culminating in severe hypercalcemia and vegetable problems. And Les Baumgard, Iowa State, and his team is doing a lot of work, as are the guys at the University of Italy, uh, Trevisi, Bertoni, and Trevis others. So this is exciting. More to follow. And lastly, I just wanted to emphasize that, as you saw in the facilities, there are new facilities, there are old facilities. There is nothing to stop the implementation of good management practices. 
things don't have to be perfect to affect change and move forward. So, um, we're looking at a ration, but the driver behind uh, the rations is a philosophy that, again, we're looking at the dry period and that initial fresh period as a management intervention window. Um, we're always starting out with the cow comfort considerations to optimize dry matter intake, and it gets back to the stocking density. And in light of the fact that OPS challenge may be a tremendous contributor to hypocalcemia and fresh cow disease, we're looking more closely at uh, reminding people about the importance of hygiene, and this gets into stocking density. <clears throat> we embrace the decant theory. We go anionic prepartum, or we go swing it postpartum uh, as high as we can, somewhere at 350 to 400. We use sodium bicarb, and if we can't get to the levels we want, or if we're in a heat stretch situation, we'll oftentimes use a, a product like Decant Plus to get the potassium levels up, assuming the product is available in that part of the world. A disclaimer here, I'm not mentioning products as advertising. People always ask me, what do you use? Okay, so I'm sharing with you the products that we've found available and have been successful. And not all products are available in the world. The negative decad, we go with biofluor, and I'll say more about that in a minute. Um, the target metabolizable protein to be 1,200 grams as a minimum, uh, given the, the demand of the fetus after 190 days of gestation, and then mammogenesis that's going to kick in uh, later on, about 260 uh, days, carry calf. It's critical that we get metabolizable protein up so that we don't leave the damned reserves. Biocore, which we use anionically, has a fermentant effect, which increases the escape of feed proteins, and so we get a metabolizable protein boost. That's how we choose to use it. We certainly supplement with high-quality bypass proteins, such as soy plus, um, less perhaps, quetalix, extra soy, excuse me, in Italy. We do look at amino acid optimization specifically with regard um, to thionine to get a 1.18 grams per mcal, and we'll use MetaSmart or similar analog problems, uh, products um, rather than a protected uh, finding such as Smart. And I'm talking now with close up. Postpartum, certainly products like Smartamine or other valid protected methionine sources uh, could be considered. We do embrace the idea that feeding essential fatty acids uh, proves to uh, foster the immune system through this time and ultimately uh, enhances reproductive performance um, postpartum. And so we will use protected uh, salts of uh, essential fatty acids and products we use as soy or protected soybean oil, essentium. Again, depending upon what the regulations are and oxidant restrictions. It may or may not be available, but even when it's not available, we usually find someone creative to produce a product that will uh, perform comparably in that particular region of the world. And finally, in light of the LPS challenge that we're talking about that may contribute to hypercalcemia, we focused uh, aggressively on feeding uh, gastrointestinal adjuncts to help protect the gut against the invasion of uh, LPS components, uh, products, yeast products such as salmonex, so food beneficial, 
in our hands, um, as well as the concept of microbial terroir, when you have severe pathogen challenge and uh, and you cannot get it under control as quickly as possible, mitigation by feeding a competing bacillus that will suppress the clostridium uh, and the possibly salmonella and coli, other pathogens in the environment. Um, but this is a, a very farm-specific approach where you're culturing all sources of pathogens on the farm to derive a bacillus that will work, but it's a valid technology. Okay. So I'm just going to throw this up real quick. <laughs> I think this is what keeps us all going. When a producer shows you something like this, and you see the progress they've made in milk productions, with the highs and the lows, you know, heat stress, knocking down production, rallying back. But our focus is always continuous improvement. This is from Benitsa Dairy, you know, and I walked, and you can see the progress that they've made over the years. And I'm very proud. Okay, so let's jump into rations, if I can negotiate this. So uh, this is prepartum diet from Bianchesi, and I'm told time is of the essence, so I'm going to show this quickly because I think it embraces our philosophy. Recognize that a herd like Ancelotti's cannot use the technologies that Bianchesi can because Parmesan-Argiano has such restrictions on feeds, for good reason perhaps, um, but in any event, um, where the valid technologies can be implemented, um, it, this is an example of, of what we've done, and you've heard the Maro's uh, success story. There's nothing fancy about this diet. The, the uniqueness of it is, though, we have a far-off diet here. Oops. And, again, straw, soy, biochlor, uh, mineral mix, and silage. So that the far-off diet is assembled and fed. There is biochlor in it. It is slightly antioxidant. The reason we did that there's multiple reasons, um, one of which is to get the fermentin effect to boost metabolizable protein, as we said, but also the fact that the herd isn't big enough to run uh, close up and far off separate TMR mixes. And you heard Morrow expresses frustration with the feeder, his brother, uh, <laughs> taking poetic license to make changes <laughs> without authorization. So uh, let's eliminate the number of opportunities for change. So we use the base mix, and on top of that, we add white uh, corn and the bypass soy, more biochlor to get the decad we want it. This is a protected soy, uh, sugar. And uh, again, there's no magic here. Uh, we get an empty supply pre-fermentin of 1281. If we look at what the emulation of the fermentin effect is in the diet, there we go. Uh, 13.25. So we've kicked up about 50 grams of metabolizable protein. Again, you can't model that, but it gives me an idea that I'm going to be over 1,300 grams at this level of intake. And I converted this from kilograms back to what I jokingly call real numbers, <laughs> not to sound like the bourgeois American, but um, for the friends back home. They don't want to do the math in their head. Um, and again, going down through this, uh, 
no magic to it at all. We've got sugar at 7%. I love sugars. Uh, I love the butyric acid effect of the rumen. It helps energize the rumen. Um, starch is 17.58 in preparation for the fresh cow diet, which would be in the 20s. So if you use a 10-point swing from pre-fresh to fresh as uh, an ad- adaptation maximum, we're within that standard, but more important is the fermentable starch as a percent of the dry matter. Here it's 14.73, and we'll be going to something just around 20 after the impression. So uh, you can see we're, we're keeping that within the, the range that is uh, perceived to be optimum. Uh, DCAD is uh, minus 13, and that's uh, monitored every other week uh, when Ellen is on dairy. Part of 10. Um, this is a low calcium diet, 0.48. And uh, we emphasize magnesium as something that should be maintained at least above 0.4, uh, just because it seems like magnesium, whether it's the quality of magnesium coming in, or magnesium oxide, and in many cases we're using magnesium chloride as well, but the magnesium oxide products are so variable. And magnesium is so easily um, competed with by other cations for absorption that uh, I liked walking on the higher side. The sulfonyl diet is 0.39. Again, that contributes tremendously to the antioxidant effect. And that's uh, coming from the uh, fermentant side of the equation. Uh, but the numbers are here. And uh, I know there's not time enough at this point to go into a lot of this. Uh, I think having this tour has prompted me to suggest to Tom that we should dedicate one of these sessions to discussing the new uh, advances in transition cattle strategy management. So um, with that, uh, again, I want to thank Eleanor. Um, for an outstanding job uh, giving us a taste of Italy. And I'll turn this back over to Maria. Thank you, Bill and Elena. I really enjoyed the focus you made on dry cow management. It is truly setting the cow up for success or failure. I hope there will be plenty of opportunity for discussion. Before we move to questions, I have a few housekeeping details. My tremendous gratitude to Bill and Elena, both of whom readily helped me sort out issues this month. Also, many thanks to introducing us to the inimitable Mauro Bianchesi, the hugely aware and wise Luca and in-charge Patrizia Paniza, and the brave Martina, and the brother duo of Silent Roberto and spokesperson Sergio Ancelotti. We commend these producers for their willingness and transparency. For some of us, this is the only way to get to Italy and see farms, and we are grateful. Bill, in turn, passes on his thanks not only to Elena, but to Daniel Smethy, their partner in Dairy Innovations Hungary, for his tremendous assistance on his journeys this past month. Maybe we can look forward to a tour of Hungarian dairies. Relative to the issues we had with producing this webinar, our next webinar will be a return to a more conventional presentation format. On September 9, we will be joined by Dr. Heinrich Spangenberg of Westside Enterprises and Westside Consulting in South Africa. Heinrich has spent over 30 years in the animal science industry as an academic and commercial nutritionist focusing 
on research, product development, and commercial applications of research. Previously working with Meadow Feeds, Molotech Feeds, and most recently AFGRI Animal Feeds, Heinry has directed technical feed sales whilst lecturing and helping develop the animal production curriculum at the Free State University of Technology in South Africa. In his present position at Westside, Heinry oversees all technical support and sales and offers consultation to provide technical support to find optimal ways of using latest science and technology to provide innovative animal production solutions. Register to join us for a 9 a.m. or a 6 p.m. webinar by visiting the agmodelsystems.com webpage and looking under the Nutritionist 2021 webinar tab for the proper webinar sign-up button. I am thankful for my co-hosts who share the task of fielding questions and bring global insight to our webinars. The webinars are organized and produced by AMTS USA and Global. In the morning webinar, we were obviously joined by Elena and Bill outside of their usual roles as co-hosts. We were also delighted to be joined by our distributor in Turkey, Dr. Huday Kavustran. In the afternoon, I was joined by my longtime collaborator, Paula Torillo of Afina, who hosts a series as El Webinar del Nutritionista. She receives support from Rock River Lab in Argentina, ably assisted by Paula Alanis translating. We are especially thankful to generous sponsors who make it possible for us to get great speakers and manage the program. We thank our gold sponsors, Arm and Hammer Animal and Food Production, hashtag science hearted. The Canola Council of Canada. Learn more about feeding canola at canolamazing.com. Adina, experts in animal nutrition with expertise in plant bioactives. And Proteca, transforming the future of farm animal health. Our silver sponsors are Aginomoto, superior nutrition through amino acids, and Virtus, both of whom have sponsored us from the start. Also, the Forage Analysis Labs of Dairyland Laboratories and Dairy One, both with affiliates around the world. Adiseo, ruminant nutrition solutions to ensure animal performance and micronutrients feeding the future. Our bronze sponsors are AminoMax, Purdue Agribusiness, Origination Inc., Vallejo, Bulkham, and The Milk Group. Each of these companies support education and research worldwide. We hope that you consider them in your formulation decisions. Following is a recording of both the morning and afternoon webinar question sessions. So thank you all. At this point, um, please open up your um, your mics, Elena, Bill, and Hudai. Um, I want to just let our attendees know that if you have a question, um, I will not be able to call on you. Sound is clearly an issue. Um, but if you would, just type the question in the Q&A window um, or the chat window, at whichever you can reach first. And Bill and Elena, I'm going to invite Hudai to offer some questions or um, comments and then have a few questions that we want to tackle and we'll be glad to answer anything anybody wants to. So hi, you guys. Thank you. <laughs> and I'm going to um, change, I'm going to change this view so that if um, Bill or Elena need me to go to a certain slide, we can easily get there. All right. Thank okay. you. Ian. Hello, everybody. Hello, Elena and Bill. Thank you very much for the very nice presentation. 
So I have two groups of questions. Uh, one is the, about the Grana Padano and Parmigiana Reggiano. I never, you know, I, I never know the, what is the difference between those two cheeses. So, but I know that uh, there are some restrictions uh, of the producing the milk for those cheese. The, for the Grana Padano, I think the canola and distiller byproducts are restricted, I think. Is that right? Yes, it is. And the same restrictions uh, are uh, for Parmigiano Reggiano as well. Uh, okay, I thought about the silage, the corn silage. They, the Grana Padano producers are allowed to use silage or not? So Grana Padano uh, producers uh, are allowed to use silages, uh, uh, while the Parmigiano Reggiano producer uh, cannot. And that uh, has an explanation in the uh, milk transformation, because during the process and the production of Parmigiano Reggiano, uh, they cannot uh, use uh, any additives, let's say, uh, while in the Grana Padano, they uh, can add uh, an enzyme that is the uh, lysozyme that uh, uh, actually stabilize the, uh, the milk. So the risk, uh, let's say, is that uh, with the fermented feed, uh, there is the possibility of uh, spora, okay, that um, are uh, inside the barn to get in the milk, okay, and to contaminate the milk and then uh, like uh, destroy the wheels uh, when uh, they are um, uh, aging. Uh, so since uh, Parmigiano Reggiano during the cheese production uh, cannot add this enzyme, they uh, avoid the use of uh, silages in order to uh, you know, eliminate the risk of uh, uh, spora inside the milk and then in the, in the wheels. Okay, thank you. Which one is produced more in Italy, you know, the Parmigiano or Grana Padano? Say that again, Udai. Which one is produced more, and I mean the volume? Oh, for the volume, also because of the area of production, is uh, Grana Padano. Grana Padano. Hudai, mm -hmm. oh, um, I'm going to interrupt just a second. Um, Elena, why no, um, why no canola? So, so it is for uh, the old, you know, I think the old hybrid of canola. So there is this, uh, the, the old hybrid, let's say, uh, where uh, transferring bad taste, they said, uh, to the milk and then to the cheese. Um, and so they, uh, they, they decided back then to... Uh, avoid you know this risk so they eliminated the possibility to use canola even if uh, you know i know now that uh, there are hybrid uh, you know different hybrid with um, less uh, anti-nutritional factors uh, that uh, may be better let's say but uh, in order to you know uh, avoid the risk they are gonna say okay no we are not gonna use it uh, do those hybrids carry with them also the possibility of restriction because some of them are gmos no, no, okay. no. There are some, uh, you know, um, lines that, uh, so some uh, cheese factories that uh, produce only, you know, GMO free, but that is an, a different story, you know, it's, um, 
you know, uh, a side production, but is not uh, is not uh, mandatory for all. Okay, thank you. Sorry, sorry to horn in who died. Go ahead. No, no problem. So the, uh, I think it, uh, you mentioned about the the uh, calf weaning, uh, but on the Angelotti farms, I think. Yes. So I think the cows were consuming about three kilograms of starters at the weaning time. Yeah. So when do you wean the uh, calves at this farm? How much, so, how old? The yeah, they are, they are weaned uh, by 75 days. They stay there, so they are weaned in group. Uh, they have uh, access to the uh, to the starter since the beginning, and uh, by the end, uh, you know, the winning period, uh, the the milk is decreased little by little in uh, within ten days, let's say, and in that moment uh, they start to increase the consumption of starter, and they reach uh, by the end uh, the three kilos. Okay, they start with eight liters of milk or milk replacer. So it is uh, uh, so milk replace. They use milk replacer, and uh, the program. Uh, so in the so they are raised, let's say in arches till ten days of life, and they are fed three times a day with uh, uh, two liters per feeding. So uh, roughly six yeah, to eight liters per day, and then when they are moved to the group they uh, start with eight liters and they uh, goes up to uh, 15 liters. So the, the milk replacers, ice. yeah, excuse me. Yeah, milk no, replacer is 27% protein and 15% fat, is that correct? Is a 27 protein, 22 fat. Okay. And is a 15% uh, the concentration. Mm -hmm. Okay. Of me. Okay. I, um, I think I missed that in the transcribing. So for this afternoon, I can go back in and, and edit that part. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Elena. No, don't worry. Okay. And Bill, of course, if you want to add uh, something more, jump in. Okay. Thank you, Elena. Thank you, Udai. Thank you very much. Thank you, Udai. Um, I want to ask a couple of questions that we had in the chat or in the Q&A. So um, Luca wanted a little bit of um, clarification on the use of biochlor um, in the transition period on the Biancesti farm. Yep, Bill, do you want to answer these? No, he's not here. So I will. Uh, so in the Ancelotti, dairy farm uh, we are uh, using uh, uh, so we are creating a base diet for the uh, for the far off uh, dry group okay. and Elena, uh, yes. Elena, sorry this was on the Bianchesi farm um, Bianchesi. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and it's um let's see Luca clarify further are you using bicor as an anionic or any other interventions and he missed with what happened three, what, what caused three quarters of the cases of hypocalcemia? So I don't understand the question, sorry. Can okay. I read it somewhere? Um, yeah, yeah, okay. read that in the questions, but it was also um, the transition cows and, and the use of biochlor. I think it was referenced early, close to the compost. Okay. Yeah. Can, 
Can you hear me? Yes. Finally, I've been talking to myself, I guess. Um, well, I'm used to that. <laughs> so was the question, why do we use the biochlor in the far off? Or, yeah. or just so, why do we use biochlor in general? So um, Luca, in, three or four cases of hypocalcemia, perhaps? Okay, so that was a ration change that Morrow's brother made that with a different forage, which the dry matter was different and probably the mineral content was different as well. And so it probably disrupted the decad effect that we were trying to achieve and the amount that they were eating. So again, dry matter intake is critical in any of these transition programs to know that you're getting the level of metabolizable protein delivered to the small intestine, as well as the you know, uh, predicted anionic effect um, to regulate the hypocalcemia. The biochlor is used in the far off um, in, part, in part to acclimate them to the, uh, to the taste of it, which is not an issue with that product as we top dress it there anyway, but it's a good protein source to help stimulate metabolizable protein um, uh, in that group. And the anionic effect um, is noted to help suppress utter edema formation as well. And so we start with a low anionic effect there and it um, progresses to a full effect in the close-up. Do you want to add anything to that, L? Or is that, did I get it? No, no, you got uh, perfectly. Okay. Thank you. Um, Bill, so given that you were talking to yourself earlier, were there comments you were making that you should say? No, I was just um, I was answering questions, but Elle did great. And she had it. She that's her that's her backyard. So um, you know the big thing there is the concern about spores transferred to any of the cheeses, and the fact that the Grana Padana uses a lysozyme to destroy any potential spore um, formation in the cheese. But Parmesan Reggiano wants to eliminate any access to spores and hence no fermented feeds. <clears throat> but not that it still couldn't happen from other sources, but again, they're mitigating the risk as best they can. Okay, uh, thanks. And, and as an aside, in some work that I'm doing here on uh, some aging of cheese in from a, a farm, uh, a dairy farm, um, I do notice the seasonality in some of the formation of what I get from molds on outside of the cheeses. And I don't doubt that that might be linked to the use of some of the feeds. Um, that's, it's different at some point. Um, I have a question to, um, so Bill and Elena, you mentioned the use of a product that, that helps contribute to microbial terroir and um, certain bacillus species uh, against clostridium. Do you have? Do you know if any such products are registered in Europe? I believe the Sertilis product is getting registered um, in the EU or or in that theater of operation. I don't know the specifics. Um, they're the, they're the only ones that I'm aware of that are pursuing it, unless there are some products uh, that originate in the EU, but I'm not familiar with any that are. So I can find out and get back to you, Mary. And, and um, Arm & Hammer now owns the company, the Microbial Terroir Group that developed this strategy, this technology. And so 
I could reach out to them and find out what the status of things is, but I don't know. Elle, do you know offhand from interacting? Um, not really. So for yeah. now, it's not available. And so, yeah. The, the Sertilla's product is not available, correct? No, 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 not at all in Europe. Not yet. Yeah, but I, I thought it was being submitted for licensing. Um, question, if no silages are allowed, and I, I know you'll have good answers for this, what tricks do you use to maximize dry matter intake? That's a good one. Try, yes. to, convince, try to convince producers to grow quality forages as with any dairy system, okay? Rule number one. So, um, but uh, go ahead, Al, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, don't worry. So the the strategies uh, is to, of course, harvest uh, high quality forages, as been said, and then uh, uh, they they can use actually uh, grass hay, of course, uh, alfalfa hay, and they try to maximize the. Uh, Recently, the use of uh, also wheat hay, for example, that uh, bring a lot of uh, high quality fiber and the strategies uh, in the, the uh, high producing dairy farms in the Parmigiano Reggiano area is to, uh, you know, increase as much as possible the uh, digestibility, the fiber digestibility, and then uh, to chop it finer, as fine as possible. Uh, another thing uh, that they can do is also add some water in order to keep uh, you know the uh, away the dust and to keep uh, you know everything together and avoid the sorting uh, problem uh, but uh, you know with those uh, strategies put it in place uh, um, in the farm we have visited uh, they reach uh, roughly 28 dry matter intake without any problem can i add something uh, uh, yes so the Ellen said it, but I want to emphasize it. Particle size, the European TMRs, in part because of the uh, TMR mixtures, the self-loading TMR mixtures that process basically twice, and just the, the diet formulation strategy, their TMRs are very fine. Um, historically, critically so, but moving forward, probably correctly so. Um, getting to what Rick's, Rick Grant and his group at Minor has shown that if we can um, maximize her intake so she doesn't have to spend as much time at the bunk loading the rumen with the, the feed, and these are dry fibers, maybe they're moist with water, nonetheless, if she doesn't have to chew it as much, she can readily take in more and spend less of her time uh, at the bunk chewing to reduce particle size in order to swallow and be more efficient with time to lie down and chew or cud, which again, the work is suggested will improve her efficiency at making milk. Okay, so that's the first thing. Second thing is to recognize that probably under most circumstances, we're not gonna get the metabolizable protein output from that uh, rumen in the form of microbial protein that we would with a fermented diet. And I think in, in these instances, the use of um, bypass protein sources is critical. 
um, to get MP levels where you want, especially given the fact that the name of the game in Parmesan Reggiano is milk protein, specifically milk casein. And um, so in order to achieve the most optimum components in milk and their fat is not the big player, obviously they want the protein. Um, the, the, the embracing the use of high quality bypass protein sources, soy in this instance, is I think paramount, okay, for success. And I, to, to add to this, I would encourage anyone who perhaps missed Rick Grant's webinar in June, June, um, he did talk about that quite a bit and you can find that in our archived web webinars. Also, when we visited Italy, I recall the, the forges were just beautiful and they, they employ such techniques as even um, dryers in order to get that hay dry, correct, Bill, Elena? Correct, yes. Many producers um, will, uh, will dry the bales, uh, not wait for the field curing, but they'll, they'll force the drying with controlled heat so they don't damage the protein with Maillard reactions. But yeah, the, that technology is definitely employed. Um, so I'm looking at our, our conversation and it looks like we have no more questions, um, at least not presently. Uh, do we, do Bill, Elena, Guy, anything you would like to leave as parting discussion before we come to tonight's webinar? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining. I know it's it's a struggle. Well, I, I so if it wasn't obvious to the most casual observer, this was not scripted and this was completely spontaneous. And um, uh, and to throw this jumble at Marianne to have her edit it and, and make it look like something um, like as as good as it came out, I'm I'm very impressed with her skills. So. I appreciate my partner's contribution, Elena, for doing all of the, uh, the recording and uh, Marianne for you doing the cut and chop and make it look and sound so good. Thank you. I wish I could do better. <laughs> so. It was perfect. Thank you, Marianne. All right. Well, thank you both. This was, as always, a delight to work with you both. Um, I feel like we learned so much. I really, really enjoy the tours despite the issues. And my, um, my favorite person is Patricia. She's just fantastic. And I have to somehow frame that picture of her <laughs> when her husband finally admits to getting it that she is in charge. Bill and Paula, um, greetings and unmute your mic. We'll start tackling questions as they come in in the question and answer window or in the chat window. Um, I have a few questions here, but Paula, if you're ready, I'll give you the option to lead off with some questions. Okay, thank you very much. Hi, Bill. Good evening. Okay, I, I have a, a couple of questions here. Please. The first one. Uh, the first one is about uh, biochlor. How do you use it uh, in terms of quantity per animal and per day, and with which other ingredients you, you mix it? Um, are we talking about a top dress or are we talking about in the TMR when they say with, with 
with which other ingredients. Uh, I'll address both. Bianchesi Farm top dresses half of it. I believe there, and again, the, the level of biochlor is adjusted based upon the pH um, in response to the cations in the diet to, to um, maintain an anionic um, ration and a, a pH of somewhere between uh, six and six, five, maybe a little bit lower than six. Um, Biochlor can be top dressed successfully because it's palatable at Bianchesi's because we're giving extra sugar at that point and an extra supplemental protein. It's all mixed together and they uh, eat it that way. The emphasis there being that we are trying to adapt the rumen for the diet that's coming after they freshen. We're trying to get metabolizable protein up uh, 1300 grams if possible. And, uh, and again, we're trying to mitigate hypocalcemia by maintaining the anionic effect. And so um, the beauty of anionic diets and products like BioClore is they give us the means to do surveillance and do monitoring on the farms in terms of intakes and such, and knowing that the ingredients are being fed or that some of the components haven't changed. You know, so much of, of our failure on dairies is the inherent variation that we never know is taking place. Well, this is one way to monitor for that variation and control it. And so it's a form of process control and um, consistency is what the best dairies um, thrive on. So did, did that address the question or was there more? Hello? Okay. Oh. Perfect, thank you. Uh, Marian, I have a, a couple of questions. Please. Yeah. May I go you want to keep going? Okay. Yes. Okay. Great. The, the next one is about uh, Basili. You talked about the, the use of Basili. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Sure. Um, company by the name of Microbial Terroir. Um, basically has developed this technology whereby they do the uh, genetic evaluation of the pathogens and select strains of non-pathogenic organisms such as Bacillus subtilis that are known to produce um, substances that will suppress the growth of the pathogens such as Clostridium. Um, this is a tremendous technology because it affords us the opportunity to avoid antibiotics um, for the prevention and or hopefully um, mitigation of disease. And so the bacillus strains are determined based upon cultures taken on site from forages, from manure, the environment, to understand what the genetic profile of the pathogens is, and then they go about selecting the bacillus that will produce the right inhibitors um, for those um, organisms. This is approved in the US. I know there's approval uh, that's going to take place in the EU. I don't know where else it is improved, but um, as nutritionists uh, that are always um, watching for enteric diseases and other problems that the rational get blamed for. Uh, this could be a tool that would be tremendously beneficial 
um, for all of us. Plus, even if a herd does not have these pathogens challenging continuously, there are studies ongoing that would suggest that the feeding of these um, bacilli will actually improve production and performance of the cows. And so there might be a benefit above and beyond just the prevention of uh, the pathogens, there might actually, there, because that's a clinical entity that we're going after, but perhaps there's a subclinical side of this that we don't realize is there all the time. And this would be one way to go after the subclinical and have that expressed as more productivity. So I, I'm not sure that paper's out yet, but I know it's in process, okay? Bill, can you tell me who's doing the research on that? Uh, well, Arm & Hammer bought the company, so they're funding it. Okay. Okay, so it will be a Church & Dwight Arm & Hammer product that is, that is marketed, and, and they will, uh, they're sponsoring the research at different universities, is my understanding. I think Oklahoma State was one, and there might be some on the West Coast. Oh. If Elliot's still on, he could chime in. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well. He can only write in. He can't chime. Ah, unless right, I let, right, right. Yeah. I could allow him to talk, but that seems excessive. Oh, please, oh, please don't. Just, just <laughs> excessive kidding. Excessive and permissive. Yeah. <laughs> he said, no, don't ask him to talk. <laughs> All right. Um, Paula, do you, I have a couple questions. If you have, um, if you want to take a break or do you want to follow up? Go on, Marianne. Okay, um, so on the Panitsa farm, when, yes. they mentioned, when he mentioned that in the future, he um, maybe would be moving to 10 robots, is that walking away from that parlor? Um, that's a very good question. Uh, I don't know his intention, but um, I would suspect the parlor will still be in force in some capacity, okay? They may, they may have 10 robots, but I still see them using the parlor um, to a certain extent. Now, where yeah, is the gonna... way it, I'm sorry, the way it looks, it just looks like he has got the worst of both worlds. Yeah. Um, in well, terms well. of both managing a parlor and managing robots. Yeah, and so the you know there is one advantage to the parlors when you have any number of cows that are not accepting of robots, and you have to make a decision. If you have to fetch a cow constantly, usually you sell it to the neighbor who doesn't have a, a, a robotic system, and that she go if she's a good cow, she just goes in a conventional parlor. So there can be advantages to having hands-on parlor um, for a percentage of the cows to get them started when they're first fresh and such to do evaluation. I'm not saying it's essential, but I've seen it done both ways. And um, uh, I don't know for sure what Luca and Patricia plan on doing. Uh, it's a very good question. I, will, I can ask Elena and get back to whoever asked the question, but I don't see it stopping right away. All right, um, my second question. Does um, in the production of milk for Parmigiano Reggiano, are there any regulations in the feeding frequency? Because I um, I think this morning there was some discussion of um, the use of particle length to to maintain a non-sortable TMR, and also water was referenced. Um, 
does the addition of water in that sort of hot environment maybe create some heating and fermentation or is it just not there long enough? Um, it certainly could in theory. Uh, it hasn't proven to be an issue because they permit it. That being said, when we first started working with Sergio and Roberto, things were permitted that are not permitted now. So it, sometimes it's rather surreptitious as to what can be done and can't be done. Um, but uh, I do not believe there is any restriction on how often you feed and such, because some herds may have um, uh, lately automatic feeders that go around and feed as needed. Um, so I, I can't comment that there is any restriction. Mm -hmm. And to your point about the diets are, are fine to prevent sorting and also so that they take a minimum of t amount of time loading the rumen and they can go down, they can get back and lie down and chew their cut and optimize their production because they don't have to spend time standing there reducing the particle size in order to swallow the bolus. Right. So, um, but um, I'll make a note on the, that. And again, I'll feed back with you on this um, when I get some better answers. Yeah, I, w I just wondered, not, not so much as a, a prohibit, pro prohibition on too frequent, but a requirement of a certain frequency. Um, and do you think that use of um, maybe regulations that weren't in place things that were allowed and aren't allowed is a way of um, controlling the milk market. Absolutely, <laughs> because um, we took that herd higher than any other Parmesan-Reggiano herd had been prior to that time. And it caught, got a lot of attention. And mm -hmm. so, and we didn't do it with anything illicit. We just used technologies that we would have used anywhere. Well. They were not specified that you couldn't use them. They just never said you could. And so they said, okay, now you can't. So uh, that's, how, that's how the game is played. When the cheese mafia speaks, everybody listens. Yes. Uh, Paula, are you ready to go back to some more questions? Okay. So my next question is, uh, why, do, uh, why does close-up diet decaf is affected by humidity. I'm sorry, Paula, I'm not sure I understood. Can you repeat? Yes. Why does the close-up diet add is affected by humidity? Um, so I'll, I'll repeat for you, Bill. Why is the yes, close-up diet decad? Why is it affected by humidity? Why is the decad affected by humidity? Paula, do you think it's um, also heat and in that there would be um, more stress? Do you think that's the question? No, uh, dry matter content of the diet, I think. Okay, so I'm guessing, and this is a guess, that this gets back to what Maro was said when his brother changed the humidity of a feed ingredient or a feed ingredient with a different humidity, meaning moisture. Um, and it threw off the total trimatter of the diet and probably the mineral balance too. And that 
resulted in milk fevers because it was no longer an effective anionic diet. So I'm, I'm assuming if that's the question, um, that was a situation where an ingredient changed, the dry matter changed, so they weren't eating the right amount of dry matter, nor were they probably getting um, a, a diet that was balanced anionically. But regarding moisture in a decad diet, um, I mean, we add water routinely in the States in our uh, close-up diets because they're so heavy with straw and other ingredients to reduce the sorting. And so I don't have a problem with that, as, as again, as long as we understand how much dry matter they're eating, which is the most important part of, of the equation to know that they're going to get the metabolizable protein and also that they're going to get... Um, adequate suppression of pH to affect calcium mobilization in the blood. And that's, again, why this is such a great technology, because you can monitor the urine pHs to know if you're getting an effective uh, uh, impact from the anionic um, feed. So if I didn't answer it, I apologize. I'm willing to take another shot at it, but um, Marianne, is there more that? I'm going to guess that actually, um, based on the way that, that Mauro talked about it, he did use the word humidity, not the word moisture. Yeah. Um, and I think it's just yeah. a, a translation issue because that, that seems like that's sensible. And your answer is in line with, with anything that makes sense. And also Mauro yeah. did say humidity, not moisture. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I meant moisture. Yes. No, I, well, I, I assume that. Yeah. We're going to blame Morrow. <laughs> well, he'll blame us. That's fine. True. Paula, okay. did you have a follow up yes. question? Um, uh, Bill just mentioned the, the use of monitoring, and you had a question about that. Yes. Yes, I was going to say that. <laughs> uh, one, one attendee asked, why uh, to monitor the effect of anionic salts every two weeks, as you said, is it through urine pH? Yes. Yeah, that's the that's the simplest way, uh, provided you use an effective uh, measure of the pH, whether it's a meter or pH papers that have distinct colors so you can distinguish the pHs. Um, but uh, yeah, it, to me, it's Anytime we can bring people to taking a closer look at the cows, okay, uh, objectively, whether it's for urine pH or for body condition score, whatever, I, I feel that we learn a lot, okay, because too often this group is neglected and they're just put there until until they freshen. And so um, it, oh, it forces us to pay more attention to a very pivotal group on the dairy. And so, I, you know, I'm an advocate of that for that reason alone. Um, but also the pH is information that we can use to adjust the diet accordingly or to find out if we're not managing properly in terms of feed um, construction. Okay, perfect. And the last one, do you think it is important to use yeast in close-up diets to improve rumen and health? Yeast? Yes. Um, so the, um, 
It's a good question because yeast brings with it any any number of things because yeast is not yeast is not yeast, right? Depends which product. We use Selmanax because it's yeast that's been taken apart into the active ingredients. And so there's it's it's a much more effective and efficient way of getting those yeast components um, to work in that room and environment where a lot of change is taking place as she adapts to a new diet, okay? As she's getting ready to go from a very low starch diet, high fiber diet to one that's gonna be lower in NDF, higher in fermentable carbohydrates. And so, you know, the change is there. And, and as we indicated, we try not to change more than 10 points of per starch percentage on a dry matter basis or five points of fermentable starch on a dry matter basis. Um, and nonetheless, things are changing. And so to have a protective mechanism in place, such as a yeast product, and again, we use Selmanax, but a yeast product in general, I think, um, is going to give you the benefits, okay, of being somewhat protective to some of the insults that might come about, despite our best intentions of delivering the right ration with the right numbers. Stuff happens, as we know, right? And um, again, I, the only reason I mentioned Selmanax is that because we've had very good response with it, and that's what we use. But if someone says they have another one that they like, um, all ears, I'll listen. But yeah, I, I'm I'm an advocate. Okay, Eleanor, okay. or I'm Thank sorry, you. Paula, keep going. <laughs> yes. Okay, I, I have uh, one last question. Please. What? Uh, sorry. Which ionophore are you using in close-up diets, and how much do you use? Ionophore. Yes. Well, in the EU. You cannot feed an ionophore. You can administer a bolus of an ionophore as a ketosis prevention. And, and so that's a measured dose that is administered once in the dry period and that's it. Um, there is no um, feeding of ionophore in the EU legally, okay? So it, it doesn't really factor in to the thought process. Um, the, I, I, I'd have to look and see, it's called Kekstone, and I'd have to see what the, the dose is in that bolus. Um, I, I don't know, to be honest with you. And not everyone uses it. Um, so it's okay. a hit or miss. Paula, are, are ionophores used in Argentina, typically? Where to? Yes. Okay. Um, I yes. think Paula is... Yeah, we, we use a lot. Oh, okay, okay. Um, Paula, okay. Thank you I very much. Oh, thank you, Paula. Um, Bill, thank you so much for, um, for being the representative question answerer tonight. Um, it was stated that everyone misses Elena. Of course. Thanks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you're sweet too. Um, yeah. So, so Paula, thanks again for join, joining so much. Um, Paula Alanis, as always, I thank her. Um, and we will see you all next month. All right. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Thank you. Ciao. Ciao.